0: to how to launch an industry we're here for a very special episode our second edition of live from mendocino we did the first episode um a year ago in september 22 uh so we're back with um several cast members and friends of the show former guests new guests so i'm gonna go ahead and do introductions we are here with graham pachenik who is the founder of Calix law a Leading IP law firm in psychedelics and drug development. We are here with Dr. Jackie Von Somm, who is the co founder and the CSO of Cylera. They're working on uh, new approaches to mental health uh, steeped in psychedelic compounds. We have David Valencourt, who is the CEO and the founder of GMP Collective, as well as the S3 Collective. Uh, really exciting stuff going on at S three. So if you're into standards, uh, for cannabis and other natural products, talk to Dave about it. We are here first time guest, longtime friend, Jonathan McCoy is an entrepreneur and founder of team machine as well as collective frame. And last but not possibly least is Dr. Del Potter, the founder of spiritus biosciences. So listener with this group that we have here in person, uh, today we're going to be talking about some really interesting topics. The first one is going to be about drug discovery from the sea. This is inspired by the view, which we're currently looking out in Caspar, California, just south of Fort Bragg, beautiful views of the Pacific ocean from here. And, um, We've been on the beach, we've been on the cliffs out here. So we were inspired uh, by our time in nature and by some of Jackie's background to talk about natural product discovery from the ocean. The second part for rapid fire science, we're going to get into a brand new paper uh, that just came out, which is all about artificial intelligence in natural products discovery. So we're going to start in a very nature kind of old school setting, and we're going to go all the way to the cutting edge of what artificial intelligence is doing, uh, in the field of natural products, discovery and drug development. So we'll take a short break listener and we'll be right back. Hello listeners. Welcome back. I was so excited introducing the group earlier that I forgot about our first segment, The Game, which we're now going to jump into. So uh, you've probably heard this before on the show. Uh, This is a 20-question style uh, game. So the question is that I'd like you all to try to guess in less than 20 questions. What is the medicinal plant that is endemic to this area that we're sitting in, just south of Fort Bragg, California?
1: Does it grow on the beach?
0: I didn't see it on the beach, but I saw it near the water with you yesterday, Jackie.
1: Ah, okay. She's about to destroy <laughs> it
0: now. <laughs> uh, Jackie probably shouldn't guess anymore.
1: Yeah.
0: I think, yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, I'll let others do some guessing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it in the water? No. That's kind of funny. It's like Jackie
2: and I are like in a canoe or something. <laughs> okay, so there's two questions it, down. There's 18 left. Is it nutritional or is it... Um, uh, medicinal I would define it more as medicinal
0: okay so there's 17 left is it psychoactive
3: yes so there's 16 left Dave you haven't asked anything can you find it outside of this area but in the United States
0: y- yes it is endemic to the place where we physically are at but it's also be oh, let me say this it, it goes beyond Mendocino And now there's either 14 or 15 left. Jonathan, you haven't asked anything. Is it it a fungus? It's not a fungus. 13 left, right? Yeah. It's like tension building. Does it have? (laughs) (laughs) It's very very tense in
3: this
1: Um, Is it flowering? Like, does it have flowers?
3: It does. I'm kind of looking at Dell and Jackie for this one to really help the team out with some points. No pressure.
2: Yeah, I'm really trying to think through species right now of what's local. Um, Dell would know
4: Is it something you could
0: buy In like capsules in a health food store Indeed I buy it in capsules at a health food store Well I buy it in capsules at a Co-op grocery That rules out a lot of psychoactives I think there's 11 left Or is it 12
4: Let's go with 12 <laughs> <laughs> That bonus okay. question Dell was
3: 12 for.
1: I'll try to ask a question that might Throw a hint out there Um what you take as a supplement is it the actual plant material or is it the com- main compound that it produces um can i ask that it's not really a yes no question but you know you know i don't
0: i don't know the answer to the question but i'll tell you on the bottle that i've bought it is the common name of the plant is listed as an ingredient okay it's it's not like um it's not like, uh, you know, molecular gobbledygook that the consumer wouldn't know. It's, right. it's like a common plant name they put on the box. Okay.
2: Is it cultivated or does it just occur naturally in the wild?
0: You know, I've been seeing it around here in the wild, but I uh, imagine that it's cultivated for like people who like want to make supplements out of it. Like, uh, then I'm buying it. I think that's 10 left questions. David, even awful quiet. Is it purple? I don't think so. That was was like an ambiguous question. Um, No, I would not say it's like primarily purple. That's nine. I think you guys are thinking too hard about it. I also know the answer.
4: Is its primary use as a supplement for a mental condition, like for mood?
0: You know, I was just reading about it on the internet five minutes ago, and um, it did list uh, psychiatric indications but that uh, I would say that's not the primary. The primary thing that, when you think about this, then we're gonna have to get into a whole discussion. If we say, if we say the answer is mood, we're gonna get into a whole discussion. Um, I would say no. As like the primary thing it's sold for, it's not mood. I think there's eight left.
1: Does Jonathan take it as a supplement? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know what? Uh, Jonathan and I are are both into supplements and and both into uh, into health uh, improvement and. Um, Neither, I don't think I've ever discussed this specific natural product with Jonathan. I think there's seven left. I'm just waiting for Jackie to say it at the end. I think she already knows it. She's just playing nice.
1: I like the part of the questions. You know? I do that. Too. I like that to, too. Yeah. That's the
0: whole point of the game. I'm glad I didn't pick something more obscure. We were having a hard time. There's also for the listener, this room that we're in, there's no internet. So this is like, a, we're recording this on some old school Zoom recorders. No, not the platform uh that you take office meetings on uh they're these like little japanese handheld audio recorders so everything was just recorded on these little recorders no internet um it's a pretty cool experience also i think is there seven questions and we still got no answer
2: (sighs) i'm thinking of two possible botanicals and i feel like i should guess one or the other let's hear it but they're not they don't really occur in supplements so But they are psychotropic. There's some that have been used traditionally by indigenous groups. These probably were. That's a free one. I'm not aware of any uh, that are used as supplements today, though. It's used in a specific type of supplement.
0: Like for a specific purpose.
1: I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but does the common name have the state north of us in it?
0: No, but you're getting warmer. Okay. That question was getting warmer than some of the other like cold fish questions I've been getting. <laughs> um, it's five or six. I think you guys are really overthinking it. I want to give you hints, but
2: every hint I would give would just give it right away. That psychotropic really throws a wrench. Into it.
1: Yeah, when you say like is it psychotropic like psychedelic or it's just psychoactive, like it has effects psych- on CNS, yeah, right? A, I yeah. would say it's
0: psychoactive.
1: Okay, yeah. Because that makes a big difference.
0: I apologize if I misled you. Okay. You did, and I think we can sure. <laughs> I see, I see, I see, <laughs> I see. Okay, my bad. My bad. Please, listener and guests, excuse me. Uh, when the question of psycho blank came through, I um, perceived it as psychoactive. Okay, we got five. Questions. Let's just call it five questions, give or take.
1: So it, at least if it's the plant, I think it is. It's likely like a large, it can get to be a fairly large plant. Like it's not necessarily the teeny little ones mm. that we saw. Uh,
0: I think it's, it's pretty small.
1: Oh, you think it's pretty small? Okay, then you're thinking of a different one than me. Okay. Okay.
0: Four questions left. You don't have to win. The game needs to conclude. (laughs) Uh, I'm gonna start throwing stuff out. Yeah, just go for it.
2: But I know I know these aren't commonly used as supplements. You know. And I can I run two together?
0: (laughs) Yeah, you can have a two for one since I misled you on the psychotropic thing.
2: You know, California poppy. um, We done. Get the heck out of here! You you take a supplement. With ding, poppy ding, in ding, it, ding, 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 ding. yeah.
0: <laughs> Dang, and we learned something today.
1: Yeah, I wasn't sure if you meant the the like Oregon grapes. That's why I asked for the state north of us, which are um, yeah. So they produce um, berberine, which I mm-hmm. also know you mentioned uh, taking. Mm, yeah. So then I was Jackie like, he
0: was trying to get me to chew on this tree. Yesterday I did. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah,
1: Very and then cool. that's why I yeah. was wondering. But okay, yeah, they do sell California poppy as a I supplement. Had no idea. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: you know, we used to make an extract of it. Uh, in hopes of finding uh, some opioids, but uh, yeah. uh, it, it doesn't have a lot. It's it's pretty. No,
1: it just has some other like tropane kind of alkaloids, it, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: The other one I thought of was angelica, mm-hmm. uh, which was used extensively in by indigenous people mm-hmm. uh, as kind of a relaxant. They used it ceremonially for a whole bunch of stuff. It was smoked mm-hmm. prior to uh, ceremonial. Events.
1: I think the other one we saw, which does grow more on the beach, was the the meadow foam. Those mm. little, like those little yellow kind of flowers, mm. that were right on the beach. Is that
0: the one you told me to eat, or the one you told me not to eat? I told you not to eat that one. Oh, I, see, <laughs> I see. I see. I see.
2: I see. All right. And and then there's d- different species of datura, uh, which are common around here, but I don't think you take it as a supplement. So, in fact, the uh, in Mexico, it's used the flowers have uh, a fluid that they get out of it they use it for eye disease well um fascinating stuff and now
0: that we know that california poppy is the mystery plant uh we will be taking a short break and actually going to our pop science slash news segment and yes we'll be back in a moment to talk about medicinal compounds from the ocean
1: Harmoniously.com is a modern psychedelic wellness company that bridges the realms of nutrition, medicine, and spirituality, forging a therapeutic connection that harmonizes the mind, body, and spirit. Our holistic approach utilizes evidence-based practices like ketamine-assisted therapy and personalized guidance to empower individuals on their wellness journey to inspire self-discovery, inner healing, and transformative growth. Visit us today at www.harmoniously.com to join us in a wellness revolution.
0: And we're back. Our pop science article today is called Why Scientists Are Searching the Ocean for New Drugs. This was actually published a while ago in 2019 on a website called Medical News Today. But uh, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, you know, we're sitting here overlooking the Pacific Ocean and can't help but think about it. Uh, we're here with Jackie Von Salm, who literally spent three months of her life in Antarctica looking for... Drugs that nobody knows about to develop to help people and change the world, right? So um, we had these like multiple inspirations and we wanted to bring this in. Uh, We thought it was like a a nice kind of tee up for the artificial intelligence thing coming later too. So anyways, uh, with that intro, um, Jackie, I just want to toss it over to you. So I think when you talk about natural products, most people aren't thinking about sea sponges. Right. And that kind of thing. Can you just like, tell us a little bit about like, what is this whole thing of natural product discovery from the ocean?
1: Yeah. So it, we did a lot of discovery of, you know, more terrestrial organisms for a long time. Right. There's also just a as humans, we tend to spend the majority of our time on land. uh, So we don't really have nearly as much of the medicinal side from oceans and marine life as we do from the land and from thousands of years of practicing these things. Um, so the idea is that you're going into a really diverse environment. It's surrounded by constant competition of organisms, which usually there's a lot of chemical signaling that has to happen when you have those kind of interactions. So how could we find really unique chemistry that could be in those areas Is sort of this um, just untapped area for drug discovery? So I think it was really the 50s, 40s or 50s kind of time when I think the first marine natural product was isolated from some of the bacteria in the water column. Um, so it, it really sparked a whole search of like marine natural products, especially in California and Hawaii. That's where some of the like OG Mm. marine natural products scientists were Mm. from. Yeah.
0: Speaking of, uh, California OGs, Uh, Dell, uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, on this whole thing of, uh, getting drugs from the ocean? Actually, I have a more specific question. You were telling me about SpongeBob DMT and no, it's not a joke. Uh, can, can you, can you please help the listener translate what they think is a joke to what is this SpongeBob DMT?
2: Well, SpongeBob DMT to the best of my knowledge is, um, five, uh, Bromo DMT or five six bromo dmt And it is derived from uh, some species of sea sponge. Uh, very little is known about it. Very little is known about its pharmacokinetics um, and what it actually what actual me- active metabolites it has. And there's very little information on TRIP reports on Arrowhead or uh, preclinical I can, research. I can see why. Yeah. Um, uh, what we do have is an interesting letter that went to Hamilton Morris from uh, an anonymous researcher. So what we have is primarily anecdotal, mm-hmm. and it's described as uh, having activity at around forty milligrams, which is quite a bit more than uh, you know uh, regular DMT or five methoxy DMT. Uh, and we're not entirely sure again of its pharmacokinetics and whether. Some of it is uh, eliminated by hepatic metabolism, uh, but the effects are described as mildly psychedelic, but extremely relaxing and peaceful. Uh, has tremendous antidepressant activity in some preclinical models, particularly the rodent forced swim test and other isolation rearing models, uh, but. We just don't know very much about it, but it is an indication of the breadth of possible psychotropic chemicals that we might find in marine life uh, that we have yet to explore.
0: The uh, the DMT is just never good enough, you know. It's like first yeah. there's just normal DMT, then you know 5-MeO, and now
2: we have the uh, is it five six bromo from yeah. the sea sponges. Yeah. I mean, uh, so your point is well taken. Uh, you know, we're always looking for a stronger DMT. Uh, we're really trying to make contact with those entities and <laughs> really, from
0: what I hear, it's going moderately well. Yeah.
2: Find out exactly their ontological status one way or another. So, well, just like I
0: jumped from California OG to you, Del, I'd like to jump from the word ontological to Jonathan McCoy. Um, Jonathan uh what are your thoughts on this article um, I know it's not particularly your wheelhouse so I'm I'm really gonna be leaning into you on this AI one next but uh, I'm still curious to hear you know you've been here with us uh, we've been on the coast together uh you you're very into personal uh, improvement in health you and I are both like interested in supplements and and all this kind of stuff what do you think like do you take supplements from
5: the ocean would you like what do you think about all this I mean yeah probably uh, I would think that you know, the source may be beneficial. Um, I'll tell you when I read the article though, I was I was curious right away why like octopi or squid weren't mentioned that have like more advanced nervous systems. Um, and if they're like, were you know, I, I saw some studies a few years back with MDMA and octopi. Um, and th- I was curious if you guys had, uh, you know, follow up thoughts about that study. Um, as far as ontology goes, you know, um, I can talk about this more when we get to AI, but, uh, I, I, like, I like to use ontology as a way to just, you know, ask questions about the world and con- conceptualize answers, you know, uh, what are the subjects and objects that are oriented, and uh, so even when I'm reading a paper like this, I could kind of use like a sense-making ontology to kind of make sense of the interactions and causal patterns that we're talking about, even if I don't know much about the domain like I don't <laughs> in this case.
0: I'm curious, uh, Graham, you know more about psychedelics than anyone I know are you familiar with this octopus MDMA thing? I can't remember. Do you remember the findings? I feel like Graham knows. I want Graham to talk. Oh, Dell knows. So I'm
4: curious to talk about that. That's good. Yeah. I know. I know the findings a little bit. I mean, so this is a study done by Ghul Dolan at Johns Hopkins. Oh, her work is fantastic. Her, her work is fantastic. Yeah. And she's fantastic.
0: Yeah. I haven't spoke, I've seen her speak, but yeah.
4: Yeah. Um, and actually some of the background of the story, which I can't recount well, um, certainly not as well as she does. So I would, certainly advise some people to listen to some of the podcasts she's done where she's described the background because apparently she had these octopuses just in her lab for like one day. And they were deciding like, well, what are we going to do with them? Well, why don't we just try to give them MDMA? And so the whole origin of the story comes together in a really unique way. But I think the findings of this particular study were octopuses are very antisocial creatures, I guess you could say. Mm. They almost never interact except for mating, and the rest of the mm. time they spend completely solo, uh, mm. d- detached from other octopuses. They get very aggressive when they're around other octopuses, and they don't like to be around other octopuses, and they'll fight if they are. Wow. When MDMA was put into their water, and I guess they can ab- absorb it through their <laughs> skin. I think that's how they were <laughs> They were given MDMA. The, they, they came out from their corners, and I think they socialized with each other. So... Certainly, it's difficult to know whether the effects well, did, we experience are similar to what of an octopus would experience.
0: I, uh, I feel like there was, um, I might be making this up, but wasn't there something about, oct- is it octopi or is it octop- octopi? Octopi. I think it, it's octopuses. Is it?
4: Uh, some kids. of them I've heard.
0: They're both acceptable. No. Wow. Well, Jackie knows the most about ocean
4: drugs. So, well, I, I um, also I should correct for the record that I sh- can't possibly know the most about psychedelics of your friends, but it was kind of, <laughs> you, kind of <laughs> you to say so. You probably also don't know the most about how to pluralize <laughs> <laughs> words. So, um, Dell,
0: were you gonna add something about the about the octa? Well, pie? just to
2: amplify what uh, Graham was saying, you know, not only are they, uh, you know. Don't interact. They're actually extremely territorial and have a lot of antipathy to one another, uh, and will actively engage, you know, uh, with another octopus and you know try to attack it. Uh, and it's somewhat miraculous that um, the uh, in addition of MDA really transformed their social behavior into, you know, making them so attracted to one another.
4: I think the real question is, is there gonna be a follow-up with five Bromo DMT and Octopus?
2: <laughs> they're already already on it. Yeah, something they have all the time, you know.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh as as it commonly is, it's it's an access and a supply issue, right? So speaking of access and supply, uh David Valencourt, are you doing standards for uh ocean psychotropic ocean uh derived drugs or no?
3: Well, so this whole topic of just natural medicine in general is really fascinating to me because we've gone, you know, we've taken the, to this single molecule, you know, pathway with the FDA for clinical trials. And to how do we dial this back and go look at, you know, multi-component analyses, whether it's seaweed or whether it's, you know, these other uh, products that come from plants, fungi, or, you know, natural products in the ocean. Um, and we don't, we don't have a current model for that, but we really need one, uh, which I think dives into the AI topic that we'll get to shortly, where we can now crunch massive amounts of disparate data to really make these decisions to look at, more than just like safety um, and toxicity of these products. So, to answer your question directly, no, not today, but um, besides cannabis, but um, that is definitely on the horizon as I see a major need, uh, especially in the United States where we don't have this framework.
0: I would venture to say on all the many oceans of the earth, there's someone growing weed at least on the ocean somewhere, maybe even under it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that one got to laugh. All right. So, um, you know, I want to go back. Uh, to uh jackie because um you know none of us have actually done this except for you right, oh, right. so um <laughs> yeah. i'm really curious uh did you like this article you know i picked the article because i i thought it was kind of generally palatable it talked about a lot of different areas you know it talks about you know for the reader if you're not going to go read this it it brings us into the first recorded um use of drugs derived from the ocean this um fish-derived medicine in China in the year 2,953 BC, all the way to these modern drugs. There's cancer drugs and herpes drugs that have been derived from the ocean. There's some of like the shining examples of success, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also talk about the, uh, the, the toxins, a lot of this stuff. I mean, there's one that I pulled out of the article that's called the um, – cigarette snail there's like a million there's not a million how many snails are 200 or 600 there's all these snails they have all these toxins and there's this cigarette snail they call it because uh the story goes that if you engage with the snail you'll smoke one cigarette before you die that's how much time you have okay so Jackie what uh I picked it because I thought it had general kind of like general palatable introduction but what did you think about the article
1: yeah no I mean it was good it was short and to the point, which is always nice, um, especially for a more generalized article, I think it definitely highlighted the more success stories of marine natural products. So things like the the cone snail that you're talking about, um, those compounds are really, it's interesting that they can kill you so quickly because they're actually used as a, for pain, um, a lot of the time and they are peptides as you, uh, I know lots of people on the supplement side have talked about recently, but dangerous ones. So don't inject these. The Yondelis is another one they mentioned in there, which is great, which was on like the sea squirt side, uh, for which is tunicates. Um, I think that it really highlights for that compound in particular, he didn't mention in the article, but they actually found later that they believe that compound comes from one of the microbes associated with that tunicate rather than the tunicate itself. Mm. Um, so there have been some good like semi synthetic methods from that compound. Um, but no, I thought the article was good. Um, I'm obviously biased too because he talks about antibiotic resistant natural products that they found from marine life, um, which he didn't mention mine, which was frustrating, you know? I'm just kidding. It was uh, for MRSA resistance, Darwin Allied um, back in the day. So, it, but there's been a lot of work in that field specifically. So.
0: I'm actually in just a uh, Jackie, could you just share briefly about your trip to Antarctica because it's becoming lore in this small group of people. So I'm, <laughs> I'm kinda, can you just like talk about that just for a second? It's such a cool story.
1: Yeah. So actually that's where the compound came from was a sponge from Antarctica. Um, Darwin allied and it was for, uh, biofilm inhibition on MRSA, uh, pathogens. So for, um, but we, studied a lot of different things. Actually, a lot of the compounds I isolated were terpenoids um, from different corals and sponges uh, and algae as well. But that trip was, I mean, it was pretty intense. I'd say from like a psychedelic, psychotropic kind of group and experience, being there for three months is pretty isolating. Mm. And um, the experience is hard to really explain, but I was actually just saying this to Dave yesterday that this experience has been probably one of the closer things that's even reminded me of it. Just being mm. with a community, being in a more like mind expanding kind of environment and being this close to the ocean and cliffs. And it's actually, um, been really unique for me on like an emotional level being, taking me back to some of that work. Cause that was over 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, it's an unexplored area. It's hard to obviously get there. It's hard to go scuba diving for things there. Um, and did you scuba dive? No, I didn't. But my professor, Bill Baker, who's actually from California, mm. um, but he he definitely did. But that's because he's he's crazier than me for sure.
2: <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> well, you have time. You yeah. have time for the craze <laughs> right. to come yeah,
1: on. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I mean that in the best way possible too. It's just he's much more daring to actually jump into the water with leopard seals than than I am. So, But yeah, it was it was a really unique experience. It was yeah. awesome.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, that's so cool that you compared it to this experience that we've been having. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Maybe I should go to Antarctica in 10 years from now.
1: Yeah, maybe.
0: Maybe. Uh, We'll see. We'll see how it's all going for me. So I just want to ask a couple more quick ones to transition us into the next article. I'm curious, uh, particularly for Graham and Dell, to weigh in on this one. Um, So at the end of the article, uh, they talk about um, this issue of chemical to clinic. So Jackie's professor is diving with the leopard seals and finding the... Um, can you say the name of the compound again, Jackie?
1: Uh, that was darwinolide.
0: Darwinolide. Okay, so Jackie uh, has got the darwinolide. And then, um, Graham, is there any difference if we're going to commercialize uh, a drug from the ocean? Uh, you know, you patent it the same. You you run it through... Your client's going to run it through trials the same. What Do you think about it any differently, or it's, it's the same thing?
4: Well, the first thing probably... One might think about doing is deuterating it. I know Dell. <laughs> I know Dell has a lot to say that about deuterated that.
0: Deuterated, Darwinolide is good stuff. Let me tell you, yeah. my I haven't had MRSA in years.
4: Ever since I met Jackie, you've heard it here no first. Marissa. Deuterated Darwinolide. Yeah,
0: dude, that's what we're naming this podcast, essentially, or I'm, I'm nominating it.
4: But I'm. <laughs> but I imagine there is a long stream of preclinical work that needs to be done, and you know we've talked about formulation work that would need to be done with these, and one of the compounds I think that was mentioned in here. It said it was very effective, uh, I forget for what, maybe it was for pain, but it had to be injected inter, oh, like oh, into in the your, spinal in fluid. intrathecally. Intrathecally, yeah. And so certainly there are ways to optimize some of these compounds, perhaps to make them bioavailable in an oral formulation, perhaps, or at least injectable as a, a peptide subcutaneously.
0: So,
2: uh, Del, any, any comments on the, on the same well, thing? Well, it just strikes me how many of these compounds that we look for for pain relief— uh or for their antibiotic potential how many of them are used as defensive chemicals by the organism and how often you know like in terms of pain relief they may have side effects that you know reflect that they're they're poisonous uh and the only way to you know uh get them effectively uh into someone is to find a way that avoids the side effects uh and you know, it's it's quite interesting that we constantly return to those defense mechanisms to try and evolve our own defense mechanisms.
4: Mm. Well, among the most potent signaling molecules, potentially. But yeah, I mean, we, we smoke toad venom. Why not smoke uh, <laughs> sea snail venom or
2: right or you know uh, I guess it's the I, I'm not sure the uh, uh, frog that is uh, the tree frog that has takes you near death, I can't remember the name of the compound, starts with a K. At any rate, uh, so often it takes us near death uh, and uh, the mechanisms that evolve as defense mechanisms, you know, like in in mushrooms, it's so very specific. You're trying to prevent uh, an insect from eating the mushroom but you don't want to kill it because you want it to walk away with some spores so you have to inebriate it just perfectly, uh, so you know that it'll actually perform that secondary purpose. Hmm. So, um,
0: running out of time here uh, for the segment. Uh, so we'll be back shortly, listener, uh, and we're going to talk about um, an exciting new article published in Nature.
4: Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal.
0: Hello, listener. We're back with our last uh, discussion for today. So this is the peer-reviewed section of the show. And we're looking at a recent publication in Nature titled Artificial Intelligence for Natural Drug Discovery. So this is a review article and it's fairly sweeping. Um, so I'll give uh, just some brief highlights. And then we have so many cool experts here sitting in the room to talk about some of these uh, different areas or how it applies to their work. But for just brief highlights, they're talking about things from genomic and metabolomic data in mining that existing data using AI to things like the exact structures of molecules that have been hard to elucidate, but people are interested uh, in for their drug properties or uh, proteins, which we're just constantly learning more about, you know, crystal structure is not even good enough and uh, uh different way these proteins are acting and getting better and better at drugging them all the way to uh, other aspects um, of biological activity. And um, that's really just scratching the surface Uh, They also go into kind of pre-machine learning techniques, traditional machine learning techniques, and then some of these newer techniques uh, related to neural networks and advanced computer vision uh, that are really making waves in, in drug discovery and in other areas of healthcare, which I'll comment more on later, the kind of differential I see there. But one part that I really enjoyed was them talking about the best practices or the standard practices shout out Dave for evaluating machine learning model. And then in the closing, they really are calling out, don't jump onto a hype wave, trying to do drug development with the newest AI algorithm, because that's not really how it's going to work. That's not necessarily meaningful. So, uh, again, it's a sweeping, but I, I found it fairly easy to read. And, um, I think it's fascinating to anyone who has, uh, interest in in any of these areas I would encourage folks to uh read this so I'd like to start with uh Jonathan Jonathan can you just tell us a little bit about you yourself um being a uh, someone who's been working in tech and who has been doing uh, using machine learning using AI uh you're applying this in your work these days can you just tell us a little bit about the structures of these things how does it all start can you talk to us about Ontology. Can you talk to us about how you go from that to building some
5: hyper complex model like this? Yeah, I can give it a shot. Um, <laughs> I think the the domain is a really interesting one, and one that I haven't uh, had a lot of time to dig into and understand the specifics of it. But I think I saw some common themes amongst like the machine learning and artificial landscape uh, come out right away. And I think um, one thing that came out to me is this this relationship between the symbolicism and connectionism. And the evolution of artificial intelligence, and these are arguably, you know, two different branches of philosophy that are trying to implement artificial intelligence. And the most recent innovations in transformer technology have come from the connectionism type of approach, which basically doesn't really worry too much about the meaning of language or words or how they're related. It just it says that the word itself is the meaning of the word. And so, um, if you're trying to like symbolically represent something, you know, with an ontological structure that has no purpose in the world of transformers, it's just like hey, there's a bunch of text, uh, these words are next to these words, we can run that pattern over and over again through uh, hierarchical algorithms and find meaning out of it, um, and you lose in that explanation. So you get this really cool tool that kind of can predict the next sequence in a word, but it can't explain something, and that's where the symbolicist type of approach comes in, and that's what I see a lot in this paper is uh, ontologies, structured vocabularies, um, and this, this like, there's no mention of LLMs or latent space representations or retrieval augmented generation, which is the latest wave of tools. Um, it it is, uh, it is a, Hey, we have a lot of good data here. Um, there's more to be gained. And if we synthesize this correctly, then we have like a useful data set for machine learning using existing methods. Um, I thought that that's what kind of came up to me upon the first reading. Yeah. Thank
0: you. And actually, uh, I want to take what you're saying about the data to Jackie, because, uh, They were talking a lot in this article about, especially uh, in the conclusions at the end, about how the data is the crucial thing, right? So uh, the databases that already exist in natural discovery, how you're curating or maintaining them, how they're being built. Uh, So Jackie, uh, I understand that you uh, have been building a uh, system of your own, it's SILERA for uh, generating novel compounds, or, or you've, you've built these drug libraries uh, in the pharmaceutical setting, as well as using and contributing to databases in natural product sector. So, what do you think? Like, what is the um, garbage in, garbage out, or like, how does it work? What does it do? <laughs> yeah,
1: in? I mean, I'm a big believer of garbage in, garbage out. Um, but I think that so a couple of the things mentioned in here. Yeah. I've either used in the past or helped even be part of, um, and the main takeaway for me, especially when you're talking about natural products is there's a few big factors that I think make it inherently terrible for being able to easily curate and look at really clean data sets. And that's one is even just in the naming of the compounds. Natural products are notorious for having like 27 different names, depending on the researcher that found them, the organism they're found from, where they're found from. There's just so many factors. There's very inconsistent across the last, you know, 100 years or so of this research. Um, Another big factor is whether or not the structures are even correct. There was a lot of years of natural products research where they didn't really have the type of technology on the level we have it now, where there's a lot of publications in the last 20 years, just correcting structures from the past for natural products that were found. Um, And that leads me to my big third one is that natural products are very intricate from like a three dimensionality perspective. They're not as easy as some of the other more. A lot of times the synthetic libraries were pretty just kind of flat, more simple molecules. Um, So when you're talking about highly three dimensional kind of data, then if it's not represented well in the data sets that you're even using, then how are you going to really determine much from that data? Um, And so that's a big thing, at least for natural products specifically, but in drug discovery as a whole, there's always sort of the crux question, which I'm sure Dell and others have opinions on too, which is can you then really tie the biological outcome you're seeing to what you're even seeing from some of that chemistry and some of those compounds? So.
0: I'm actually, uh, interested in that. Uh, Dell, could you, um, jump in a little bit on what Jackie was saying about the biological side and the actual, you know, computational side? Um, you know, Dell, you and I have both worked with organoids. Um, I'm working with them presently, uh, at my company Aramark Therapeutics. Uh, you were working with some brain organoids, uh, previously on, uh, some of your work with uh, psychedelics and, and uh, understanding the mechanisms there and the outcomes. Can you talk a little bit to this uh, biological versus chemical thing um, and uh, how do we link them? How is it, how, how are people com- linking or combining or collaborating these things to, to make meaning to study the biological system?
2: Well, in the, in my particular case, we were using brain organ- organoids to, as an experimental model, uh, to really examine uh, you know, artificially induced states uh, resulting from substance abuse ind- indication. So uh, these brain organoids would be exposed to uh, opiates for a particular period of time. And then measurements are made of biomarkers that are really indicative of uh, learning, memory, uh, chronic drug use, uh, that sort of thing. And so we're looking for overexpression or underexpression uh, in those cases. And then uh, using an intervention like a psychedelic compound such as 5-methoxy-DMT, and then seeing how that artificial state is affected, how that model is affected by that intervention. And you know, in our case, what we found was that it reversed all the effects of the opiate-induced experimental state and returned it to something that was uh, almost normal uh, and extremely rapidly as well. So that's the way we're, we were using it. Um, there's always this question of data balancing and really looking at uh, your, your model to make sure that you know it is accurately reflecting what it is you're trying to examine. so but that that that's how we were using it.
0: Yeah, that's um similar to what I'm working on and it's just so interesting to see like as the the gap between you know humans, animals and machines just closes, you know, I feel like uh we're going to study and link them until something happens you know so so uh i was looking at my notes here i put in big bold letters yeah i see you dave grabbing the mic you know what's happening i put in b oh i guess i was staring at you this is why it's cooler than zoom because i'm like literally staring at you so you know can what, tell what the do. eyeballs are looking oh, this time yeah 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 so um i'm uh i have here in big bold letters on my notes gold standard data sets dot 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 lacking um, and that's something that I didn't say, i not just copied and pasted that out of the article. Right. So they didn't bold and caps it, but I did. Um, and it wasn't their conclusion. It was like a major thing that they were concerned with. Um, so Dave, this is something you're also concerned with, right. In, um, in natural products and, uh, in cannabis in uh, state and federal standards. Also, you do this all the time. You're trying to like achieve standardization so we can have like train tracks to run stuff around, you know in research in uh CPG and whatever so um can you speak to it, Dave? Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, I think Jackie teed this up really well with talking about um, and I remember being at the international conference on the science of botanicals at Ole Miss uh, last last two springs that I've been going, and there was a conversation just to your point, Jackie, about you know, going back and looking at these data sets where these assumptions have been made of, you know, it's this chemical compound, and oh wait, we're actually incorrect. It was off by this this group or you know, cis versus trans. And you know, these can actually have pretty large impacts um, because of the technology that we've had from you know did they have the end did they look at use lcms nmr and like the full range to be able to truly identify this and then how do you go back and that kind of garbage in garbage out and how do you translate all this and put these multiple different disciplines into one big aggregated model um and understand the inherent assumptions that were in each study Right, that, that created the data, the, the design of the you know experimental design to get to that final single number conclusion or you know result. Um, so there's just so much room for assumptions there that can exacerbate where we get to. so we have to have this common language, you know like, IUPAC when we identify chemicals or a CAS number, like we need that. And even even that's not perfect, right? Like uh I guess the one thing that I've been talking about a lot in the cannabis industry where I'm actively engaged is with Delta Nine THC. We talk about this, you know, we used to talk about THC. Then we got a little more specific when we realized that this delta eight thing started coming out, and but then you realize, wait, delta nine. There's four different delta nines, and one of the papers I was just talking about with folks the other day is that you know <clears throat> the high THC, you know, marijuana from a legal standpoint in the U.S. is typically trans delta nine THG, and there's even two of those. But then the Viber ones have a lot of higher ratios of the cis, and some. Uh, you know, studies have shown that maybe cis has uh, lower uh, psychotropic effects on us, right? So are we thinking about that? <clears throat> and do we even have the resolution in the commercial chromat- uh, chromatographic methods to evaluate that? You know, It can, I think, if you listen to me and take all this in, and you're like, "Well, forget this AI stuff. This is all garbage. We have no good data to do it." I mean, it's not all doom and gloom, but we really do have to think and recognize what the assumptions are and work together. Um, And you know, the last thing I wanted to say as I was reading this paper was really insightful because I'm I love bringing different like disciplines and diverse groups of people together, right? And that's what's really cool about what AI can do, where you've got this like these computational folks, then you've got the bench chemists, then you've got the actual like end user, the commercial, you know, developer that's like, we have to all speak the same language to create a common goal and an outcome. That's that's a major uh, endeavor just to to bring together. So it's it's kind of cool in that regard.
0: I did like uh I did like the figures. Like just um just like the two big figures in this one, uh, I thought were really great. Um, so I want to ask Graham. Uh, we're getting a little short on time, um, but uh, I want to ask Graham because uh, you interact with so many people who are actually like commercializing their work, their chemical drug discovery work, right? You're kind of sitting at the nexus of protecting and commercializing that stuff. So, um, do you what are you seeing? Uh, are you seeing your clients using AI uh, either for drug discovery? Or are you seeing it in the patent space? I'm just curious at that, that nexus. Uh, what have What have you been saying, Graham?
4: Yeah, well, I do see many, if not most, clients at least considering how to take an AI-driven approach, and many are using traditional iterative design in combination with AI and trying to see what works best. Of course, many of my clients are as are in the psychedelic space, working with fairly limited scaffolds. So I think as we perhaps see that space develop more, we'll see, or maybe as we see the AI drug discovery. you got a deep-sea diving suit. Deep-sea diving suit. We'll yeah, see some, expand right some, really some novel compounds. But the thing yeah. that really I was left with in reading this was some of the things that Dave pointed out about how people need to work together. We need to see a common approach. And some of the points that you mentioned too, Nigam, that came out of the conclusion yeah. of this about how we needed a big data set. We needed interoperability between the types of ways people use to describe the data and that this is a project that's bigger than any particular lab, bigger than any particular company. That, to me as a patent lawyer, sounds like almost the opposite of what I find a lot of people working towards, which is putting fences around things so they have the exclusive rights to work with it, Mm -hmm. trying to bring the ability to work on something into, into one lab or into one company. And those things working in tension. And I have seen some applications, patent applications filed on aspects of using AI for drug discovery. There was just one filed maybe a week ago, I think, in Varic Biosciences on docking of uh, compounds for serotonin 2A activity Mm -hmm. and wondering how the impact of companies trying to bring their data sets or their algorithms, although you mentioned maybe it's not the hype of the algorithms but even just bringing their data sets privatizing them keeping them out of the bigger system as a if how how that works in the balance of the broader goals of increasing innovation in this space finding more novel compounds in this space companies working together and what are the tensions there between companies wanting to privatize their knowledge and the need for there to be some common space and companies working together to have something more universal that all can benefit from
2: mm.
0: Yeah, it's a constant struggle, uh,
4: to put it lightly.
2: Graham, do you see any way out of that dilemma? Is there some way that you know those those kinds of universal standards can kind of develop uh, outside of this tremendously competitive landscape that we see?
4: <laughs> That's a big question and probably a podcast for itself. Um, I mean, I think there just have to be broader alignments of incentives. So as companies recognize that they'll do better together than any of them could on their own, and there's still abilities even working together for companies to compete with each other and find success above the companies that they're still together with in this project, I think they'll find that their incentives are aligned to work together at least to combine and aggregate data sets or, or do other things, but certainly some of the things like Jackie mentioned, like 27 different names for a single company. I mean, those things work against everybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, but but some of the ways of doing open science, decentralized science, uh, you know, many of those systems that are developing now too, maybe we'll see adv- advances in, in those uh, that can lend a hand at least to finding ways to, to advance some aspects of this work. And, uh, one, one, or actually six, hopefully six months from now, uh,
0: we can revisit that. We'll come back in like six months or a year from this exact spot and we'll see what progress has been made or not. So, um, anyways, listener, uh, as we are running a little short on HLI time, I'm just going to go around, um, to the group. So we talked about, um, you know, plants that are around where we are around, um, and, their value, right? We talked about seeking that value in the depths of the Antarctic ocean. Uh, And we talked about going all the way from that to applying very sophisticated uh, computational approaches to enhancing the knowledge available around us to make better drugs, ideally to help people. But as Graham highlighted, some have other motives or mixed motives, which I think you can't really change. So With that, uh, do we have closing remarks? Does anyone want to get on a soapbox, a hemp box, a uh, 5-6 Bromo DMT uh, sponge box uh, and give any uh, closing (laughs) thoughts on the pod?
1: Uh, I guess as the resident natural products chemist in the room today, um, I would think my only soapbox a little bit with especially this last paper, but natural products in general is – Two things and I'll be quick is the first is a lot of the current data sets and a lot of things that have been assessed to date really do ignore a lot of, especially what Dave was talking about stereochemistry and the stereochemistry and chirality of these compounds is so important. Um, And it's just, I mean, terpenes, terpenoids, they all have so many aspects to them that it's actually tough for us to even use instruments to be able to separate out like enantiomers, let's say for listeners, those are like mirror images of each other.
0: Yeah. That, uh, silica gel column's not going to do it. No, exactly. Uh, and uh, big issue, the nuances that Dave was highlighting. And actually, uh, you've inspired me, Jackie. I really would love for everyone to give a short closing remark from their expertise. So Jackie talked about the now, nat- cause we have like kind of a nice circle here, right? So Jackie, um, gave it to us from, um, natural products. So Dave, uh, from the standard side, uh, what do you think? What what is this? What, what do you got to say from atop the box of standards?
3: I think recognizing it goes back to and you know. There's a quote here that I'll just use to kind of leave with my lead with my closing remarks. You know, to build trust and use the full potential of deep learning, we believe a set of best practices needs to be established for using the deep learning techniques and the natural products research, and that's you know a really powerful sentence to me that I think wraps all this up. Without trust between companies, that you know, how else does the rest of the world work? Railroads, auto manufacturers, airlines, like the, the raw materials, the entire supply chains have had to build trust and that's based on a minimum set of standards that protects all stakeholders. So if we can have some basic foundations and recognize that, oh my God, stereochemistry is kind of freaking important. And we need to look at that. And we agree that no matter what, we're always gonna ask that type of question before we spit out our data, you know, that could go really far in the data validation and the the credibilities model. So that's I think we just need to think about that and how can we work better better together while still not losing a competitive edge i think that's the challenge no matter what topic you're discussing that has commercial implications totally uh couldn't agree more uh jonathan
0: from the uh kind of computational side um standing atop the workstation um on top of the the cpu box from the cpu box jonathan can you tell us what what do you see
5: from the cpu box yeah um well, I read a paper like this and I look at some of the challenges of like actually refining the data to get the data sets that we were talking about as like a gold standard. And outside looking in, I understand now like there's like maybe disambiguation problems about the names of the natural products. And I'm mm. curious if like if you take a natural product and it has one uh, interaction at a cellular level, another interaction at a tissue level, another interaction at an organ level, you know, What kind of data sets exist to kind of like reify those interactions and kind of take a a syntopical um, synthesis to understand what, how those models can inform one another? Um, That's the question I was running through my head as I was thinking about like a golden data set.
1: Hmm.
0: So uh, Dell from the psychedelic space, from the uh, using cutting edge techniques like organoids uh, for drug development. Uh, what what box do I even put Dell on? Wow. How about the um, brain organoid on psychedelics box?
2: Yeah, to Jonathan's point, um, you know this golden data set I I see that you know there's tremendous potential to leverage uh, what the potential for machine learning and AI is to marry all these levels, uh, including you know uh, in in the case I'm looking at uh, brain organoid biomarkers that are essentially a biological, Measurement to fMRI, which and and being able to tie uh, the biomarkers from all these instruments together uh, to create predictive models, I think uh, you know that being able to leverage that power is really where we're going to really see some major advancements. Absolutely, Um, Graham. I'll go
0: after you. So um, on top of the box that is made of the hopes and dreams of the many patent filers. What do you think?
4: Well, I think the the two points maybe that I was left with, one of them in thinking a lot about AI just lately and thinking about machines and humans generally and hoping that I'm not going to be put out of business anytime soon. One of the things that maybe brought some comfort to me was one of the lines in here that said, AI approaches generally won't be able to predict entirely novel chemistry. So we'll still need scientists in the lab doing basic science. And, and that, I think, was a comfort. Even though I've heard, for instance, with AlphaGo, I think the, the Go program came up with some moves that humans had never even been able to, mm. to think about. So I don't know how much faith I put in this statement, but I'm going to at least put my hope in it that the machines won't be taking over from all of us anytime soon. My other point <laughs> that I'm thinking just because I'm also channeling my wife who's here and next week we're going to climate week. Mm. Uh, the last line from the article on the, uh, the the first one we did talked about just the importance of how, so much diversity in the ocean is a threat of being lost. So this, I am now getting up on my soapbox, especially because being here in this beautiful environment. We can and, literally see it from where and, we're and, sitting. And, right. and, like looking and, at and seeing all the diversity right around now. here and admiring yesterday, walking around and being outside, all the diversity in the environment, just thinking about how important it is to preserve that and to preserve the climate. So I'll step off my soapbox. But
0: I think the it was particularly diverse, uh, the cliffs that you were on and the cliffs that I was on in the literal ocean between us. Um, but I'm happy to be here with you now. So, um, yeah, I guess actually, Graham, you you read half of what I want to say. Instead of saying my own thoughts, I'm just going to literally read from the closing of this AI article, two sentences. It is also important to recognize that AI approaches will generally not be able to predict entirely novel chemistry as Graham also pulled continuing. Mechanisms of action that have never been observed before or completely new catalytic activities of enzymes will not be created, right? Investments in fundamental biochemical research are needed to shed light on those parts of the biochemical space for which AI currently does not yet provide meaningful insights. So um, I think AI is great. I think new tools are great. But I think that uh, just as always, just understanding the fundamentals and then
2: applying cool tools to the fundamentals is is where it's at. It's so encouraging to hear that we as human beings have a little bit of runway left before we're completely eclipsed. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I share Graham's optimism that you know for a minute we're still going to be relevant.
4: The AI can find the new five bromo (laughs) dmt but the like the ai can't appreciate the five bromo dmt that reminds me i wanted
0: to say earlier listener that was a royal we the royal we that Graham speaks with (laughs) so um yes uh well as much as we could just talk all day um some of us have flights to catch not me but some of us um so uh listener uh thank you so much uh for joining us uh here in uh mendocino county california if you haven't been uh check it out uh we're just south of Fort Bragg and it is phenomenal out here. Um I'd also like to shout out a few other people uh Dr. Jehan Marku, who cannot be here with us but is uh, very important to this show and he will of course be with us next time. I want to shout out uh Joe Leonardo who is our audio engineer and will take Um, what we've recorded here and make it into something beautiful you can listen to. I also want to thank uh, Anna Marie uh, Sasita for uh, taking pics and helping us make a cool album cover for this, hopefully. So we'll see how it all turns out. Uh, And with that, listener, we will see you next time.